I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. Oysters are pretty incredible. They can be incredibly delicious, and they're one of the things that people come to the Lowcountry to eat. But they also have some natural superpowers. Superpowers that are particularly relevant for a place like Charleston that's surrounded by water and constantly contending with sea level rise and flooding. Today, we're going to be learning about oyster superpowers with help from a low country oyster farmer. I'm Josh Ebach, co-founder of Barrier Island Oyster Company. We started Barrier Island in 2016 and started putting oysters in the water in 2017. So we've been doing this a little while. What do we mean when we say oyster farming? How does the process work? The very beginning, you file a lot of paperwork and you jump through a lot of hoops to get permission from several different agencies. Now, I'm specifically talking about floating oyster farms. So the the type of mariculture that we do, there are other types. And some of those permitting processes are less rigorous. But for floating mariculture, there is a permit that has to be obtained from three separate agencies, two state and one federal. And that process takes well over a year to establish permission to put these cages in the water. So once we get that permission, we actually go out to our site that has been designated on a map using coordinates and all that on Google Maps and everything and latitude and longitude. We go out there and we start sinking anchors into the bottom of the seafloor, which allows us to tie line and then secure the floating cages so they don't float away. And then once you have enough cages, you go find a hatchery where they are spawning single, well, they're spawning oyster larvae, and then they're setting it as single oysters. The oysters, they're free swimming when they first spawn. And so as larvae for a period of up to two weeks, they're free swimming in the water. And that happens in our waterways here in South Carolina. But in a lab, the idea is to help push those free swimming larvae down onto very, very finely ground pieces of oyster shell, uh, almost like oyster sand. It's called culch. And when they land on that, they will adhere to it. And that stops their swimming process. And that starts them creating their own shell. And so that's how you get that, that oyster as you come to know it as a single oyster. So once they stick on those, on that sand, on that culch, you've got a single oyster and it's measured in, in microns, you know, fractions of a millimeter at that point. And we wait, we try to wait as long as we can because the hatchery has pumps and filters and algae and they're feeding these things and they're really, they're really taking care of them to get them to a size where we can manage them because at a certain size, they're just so vulnerable and they're so small and they're so fragile that uh, we really can't keep them alive. So we'll buy the seed. It's sold by the, the thousand, like a CPM pricing based on the size. We'll buy as much as we can afford at any given size, depending on what's available we take, take the seed once we get it in and we'll use a different size mesh bag depending on the size of the seed, but we'll put them into the farm at whatever, in whatever container we'll hold them based on their size. And from there, it's essentially a regular process of what we call grading for size and shape uh, over a period of months and even years sometimes. Um, and at each grading stage, You have oysters that have grown and move up to another size, maybe even two sizes up in terms of their mesh and their container. 
and then you have oysters that keep growing in that same size. And so it's always, always a sifting out the guys that want to go up to the next size until you reach a, a harvest size. And then they come out and they go to market. Um, and that process can take anywhere from sometimes nine months, as short as nine months up to 18, 24 months. I think we probably have some, some oysters that have grown very slow. They're just hanging out in the farm. They might be over two years old now. Um, very few last that long, but that, that definitely happens. What I love about oysters was their taste when I got into this business. What I've come to love about oysters is, of course, still the taste, but is their superpowers. I I find them to be the most amazing creatures the, that we have, this uh, natural resource here in South Carolina that um, can help in so many different ways take care of the water that we all love so much that really i think is the is the thing that binds all of us here together in charleston i mean both physically surrounds us but also it's a big part of the reason why we're all here and why we find this place to be so amazing and wonderful the oysters are are literally what they call a keystone species that makes all that possible in the wild they they create reefs where they all grow together along the shoreline and the reason why they do that, and I'll just touch on it quickly for folks who, who don't necessarily understand how our intertidal oyster growth works, because it's different than places like the Gulf or even up in New England, where you have hard bottom waterways where the oysters can actually, a lot of times you'll end up with wild singles that grow right there on the bottom of a river or a bay um, or the Gulf of Mexico. And you can go harvest those as singles and you can sell them. But here we have clusters. And the reason why we have those clusters is because our bottom is very soft. There's a lot of sediment in our water and oysters that land on the bottom do not survive. If they are underwater all the time in most of our creeks and rivers, they will not be able to actually survive. They'll be covered up with silt. So the place where they find that they can survive the best and thrive is in between the high tide line and the low tide line. And that's where they can get food when the water is high, but the silt washes away enough when the water goes down to leave them uh, uncovered and not buried in in mud that keeps them from growing. So the problem is along our shorelines, you have a very limited space where that actually happens. We have a high tide range, which you still only have maybe eight or 10 feet, maybe 20 feet, depending on your shoreline, of area that's covered by water at high tide and exposed at low tide. So where they can grow is limited. It's like New York City. If you can't go out, you got to go up. So they land on each other and they just grow up and they get taller and taller. And that's how you have these clusters. When they do that here, what they're forming is habitat for a lot of species, whether it's shrimp or fish or crab. Over 120 species live in these reefs at their typically their juvenile stage of life when they are also the most vulnerable and they need protection from predators and other things like that. And they can also find food that comes to those oyster reefs as well. So that's a place that they consider to be a home. It's a nursery of sorts for a lot of species. And again, a lot of the species that I'm not saying people take for granted, but you may not always think about the fish you're after spent time in an oyster reef when they were much smaller. And if we don't have the oyster reefs, eventually we don't have those fish. So there's there's a, a very important connection between the economy and the ecology of Charleston and of South Carolina in general that oysters are essentially the foundation of. I'm Jocelyn Greshik, and I'm a reporter at the Post and Courier in Charleston. 
I had the opportunity to work on a story when the oyster harvesting season first opened. I got to talking to some oyster farmers, and that's how I met Josh at Barrier Island Oyster Company. And I was just interested in hearing from him on that story, just kind of like what he and his team were kind of looking forward to at the start of the season. And I really didn't know a lot about oysters and, you know, how the commercial harvesting business works. That's kind of how he mentioned, you know, this aspect of flooding and how oysters could possibly help mitigate those concerns. And especially in an area like Charleston, you know, we're in the low country with the threat of rising waters and climate change. As soon as he mentioned that, I was immediately interested and wanted to learn more. How can an oyster help with flooding? Oysters act as a buffer between the marsh and the sea. And the marsh, that's really like what can help prevent flooding, right? Oysters help extend and grow that marsh line. And then the marsh acts as like a sponge. That's kind of how I think about it, right? So water is coming. If it hits more marsh, there's more of a chance that the water could be absorbed. I think the key when we think about oysters and their relationship to flooding is oysters help grow marsh and marsh soaks up water. The marsh is, is our protection, it's our buffer between essentially the ocean and the upland where we are able to live and have our homes and our businesses and our, our lives off the water. If you have too much water getting past the marsh, then you have the flooding problems that we have in downtown Charleston or in other parts of, of this area. And not all of that is going to be mitigated by oysters, but definitely some of that is due to the disappearance of marsh over time, which is due to overharvesting of oysters lack of replanting oysters at enough volume to replenish what's coming out. Um, of course, development and, and all these other things that it all plays it all plays a role. But ultimately, when those oysters disappear, the marsh grass starts to erode into the water. And the next thing you know, you've got less marsh than you did last year. And that happens year after year after year. And there's less room for the water is that when you have storms or you have surges or you have big tides, there's just less room for the water to go soak up into the marsh. It ends up all the way past the marsh and into areas we would never have expected to see it previously. So as far as superpowers go, we've got uh, erosion protection, we've got flood mitigation, we've got home for all kinds of species. Uh, we haven't even talked about filtering the water. A grown oyster can filter, they say, up to 50 gallons of water a day. I, I will confess I never tested it, but I believe those numbers to be accurate. And we've got Numbers beyond my ability to uh, even project in terms of the number of wild oysters and gallons we're getting filtered here in the low country every day because of our wild oyster reefs. And of course, we can take a very, very tiny amount of credit for the farmed oysters we put out in the waterway and, the, and what they do day to day when they filter the water. They provide also some floating habitat and things like that, which is interesting. We find fish and crab in those cages. The floating cages don't obviously give us any additional marsh, but it is something that we're proud of that our ability to grow an oyster that is desirable to a market that is essentially insatiable prevents or at least limits the amount of wild oysters that need to be taken off of the shoreline to meet that demand. And that is not to say that the wild harvesting is wrong. We actually do some ourselves, but it's, it's important to do it responsibly. And from my perspective, and I think a lot of people's perspective, you can't responsibly harvest enough oysters to meet the demand that exists when you're only using wild oysters. We'll be right back with more after this quick message. Hi, I'm Taylor Istabo, and I'm an audience engagement producer for The Post and Courier. 
Our digital team makes sure the paper's journalism gets to you through our newsletters, social media accounts, and website. We put a lot of thought into what tweet will communicate the most important information from a story, or might make you laugh. And we know the news. We're constantly monitoring the biggest stories of the day and figuring out how to get that information to you. When you subscribe, you're supporting that work. Visit postandcourier.com slash subscribe today. DNR, the State Department of Natural Resources, they are kind of in charge of managing the state's natural resources. So DNR makes a really big effort to restore the waterways. So every single commercial farmer has to reach a quota each year, which means that for every oyster they're taking out of the waterways, they have to make a concerted effort to put some back in the waterways. And Josh and Barrier Island, for instance, started right away with the bamboo sticks. We have seen a ton of success with bamboo stakes where we will put them about a foot into the mud, leave two to three feet exposed. And as the time you do that so that essentially where you want to place them is so that at the low tide line, so that then the water comes up, covers the bamboo, you get baby oysters landing on it. Then it comes down, baby oysters, you know, they eat when the water's up, they survive when the water's down, up and down, just keeps going. Eventually, the oysters grow, and this happens very fast in our in our creeks in particular. There's just a ton of food, there's a ton of flow. They're very healthy creeks, which we're fortunate to be there. But they'll grow to two, three inches in a matter of a year and a half, and then the bamboo starts to rot. And so you place the bamboo close enough that ultimately it falls together and creates almost like a basket weaving effect, kind of like the marsh grass. You know, it just it falls across itself, creating like a, a crosshatch. But it's all oysters falling and creating one big reef. So you've got the bamboo is almost like a rock candy lollipop that rots away and falls, and then they just fall across each other until they create this semi-stable, you know, line of oysters and and bamboo and everything else, and then more oysters land, and then that reef becomes really embedded and entrenched and it stays. And then behind that reef, you start to see the accretion of sediment, and then you start to see the marsh grass come back. And that's always really cool to see. I mean, when you see a place where it's just the water and has pushed the marsh grass back. There's big indentation in the creek. And then you start doing this restoration stuff. And then a couple of years later, you start to see the, the mud's coming back. The grass is moving forward. The marsh is literally expanding again. And that's really exciting because that's that to me is what the what we're here for. We are still very fortunate here in the low country. We have wild oysters in the water every year. More than once a year, wild oysters, we have spawn and they put larvae in the water and it's everywhere and it will land if you give it a place to land, they will land and they will grow more oysters. That's not true everywhere. In fact, you go up to Chesapeake Bay and you go further up north where like New York Harbor, for example, where there used to be enough oysters to keep that water clean, to mitigate the wave action from storms. There was more oysters there over time humans and the way that we live and develop and everything else have depleted that resource. So we're not there yet. We're fortunate that we still have the wild resource. So our job is to put stuff back in the water so that the oysters that are here can land there and create more oysters so that we never get to a place where we are like the Chesapeake Bay. So what we specifically do and what the DNR asks everybody to do when they have oyster roasts or anything like that, and what a lot of organizations work to do is put back shell. Every shell is very valuable. So it's important to save that shell. What we do is every week when we harvest our singles, for example, 
we have a lot of cast off shell, whether it's like dead oysters that are in the bags, that it just happens. You have mortality, you have small oysters that, again, part of the blessing and the curse of, of working in a waterway where there's so much wild natural oyster populations, we get what we call overset on the oysters. We'll get a baby oyster land on one of our singles. And while I love oysters, I don't want to keep that oyster on our single. So we scrape that off. But instead of throwing it away, we put it back in the water. We know what oyster farmers are doing in terms of trying to build up oyster reefs and and do that restoration work. What about your average person, right, who enjoys an oyster every now and then or hosts an oyster roast? Is there anything that people who aren't oyster farmers can do to contribute to some of that work? I think the state is really pushing people like you and me who might host oyster roasts or maybe cook some for their family at home to recycle their shell. So like after you have an oyster roast, you collect all your shell and you take it to these drop-off boxes and you stick them in and then the state will come and pick them up and then they actually have these big barges and they'll go out to their waterways and dump them. So I think a really important thing that you and I can do is just, yeah, remembering to collect our shells and look up where we can find these drop-off locations so we can be a part of that restoration effort. We are talking about drops in the bucket, but you know what they say, drops fill buckets. And ultimately, you have to do these things and they make a small difference, but a lot of people start making a small difference and it adds up. You know, in addition to, to the flooding protection, Marsh grass is a carbon sink. So part of the reason why we're worried about the rising tides and everything else is is climate change and the the sea level rise. There's no question the sea levels are rising. If we focus in that direction and we turn our energies in that direction, we're going to see a positive impact as a a community, as as a society. So it's a big issue that feels very hard to solve. And I'm, you know, oysters aren't going to solve it, but they're certainly not making it worse. And if anything, we can do a small amount to make it better. So let's do that. All right, that's all for today. For more information about oysters in the Lowcountry, check out our show notes where we've linked Jocelyn's story and some other recent oyster-related coverage for the Post and Courier. We've also included a link to a map from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources of places where you can recycle oysters. Check that out and let us know if you use it. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at UnderstandSC. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state.